All right, if you have your copy of the scriptures with you, you can turn to John chapter 2. Be looking at verses 1 through 12 tonight. Turn there myself. So, um, I've told you guys before, um, those who don't know me, I, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, don't hold that against me, um, but I was a religious studies major, and you, if you know anything about UNC Chapel Hill, like, why in the world would he be a religious studies major at UNC Chapel Hill? And it's a great question. Um, but I tell you, I, I, I got a scholarship there, it, something about the school attracted me there, I had some friends going there, I, I can't exactly explain why I went there, but I was drawn there, uh, what'd you say? It wasn't hands, bro. That was a good time. Um, uh, so, but then um, just religious studies really inter interested me. And, and one thing that really held my interest, the reason I stuck with it, is just always this, this fascination with why do people do the things that they do? How do, how do they, what drives people? And I think uh, St. Augustine sums it up well. He says, our hearts are restless until we rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until we rest in God. And, and just to observe whole cultures, whether in, in India or the ancient Mediterranean, wherever, um, Islam, just, you know, what, it's, there's this imprint on our souls that, that longs to be reconciled to God, that longs to encounter the divine, but yet knows that there's a problem, knows that, there, that something is wrong between me and him, or me and it, whatever their conception of God is, and, um, and, but, and so by some sort of effort, by some sort of works, things need to be made right, and I've just, I've always, even now, just love observing culture and analyzing culture. Um, it's like a favorite unofficial pastime of mine, and um, I tell you, one of the, the, the best insights I've, I've ever uh, come across is from a a sermon from Thomas Chalmers. He was a, Scot a Scottish minister in, um, in the 19th century. I had to do that. Um, but he, he wrote this sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And, and there he said, he, you know, just in the Puritan tradition, he takes one verse. He, he took uh, the, the verse from 1 John 2 that says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For everyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he, and he takes this one verse and writes a whole sermon on it. And he basically uh, tells his audience that it's not enough just to say, stop. It's not enough to, to just say, stop doing this, stop doing that, stop drinking, stop sleeping around, stop whatever. And we know that from experience, right? I mean, as you, as you try to reach family members or those that you love or even just preaching to yourself, you know, I, I remember even there, you know, drug education growing up, it was all about these are the, the, the bad things that are going to happen to you if you pursue this. And yet, every, you know, still people pursue that, you know. Um, and you could say that about so many other things. Uh, has anyone ever seen the, the Bob Newhart sketch where he, he, he's, he's counseling these people, this, this young woman who's afraid of death, and he, he just over and over again just tells her, stop it, stop it. And finally he tells her, she's like, what, is there not more to it than that? And uh, she's ready to take, I was like, she wants to take notes. And she's like, okay, I'll give you a little bit more. And she says, Stop it before I put you in a box and put you six feet under. And, uh, and it just, it floors her. And, but anyway, it's, 
silly sketch. You could look it up sometime for a good laugh. I know I just gave away the point of it, but um, you, could, you could look it up and just to, to show that saying stop it is not enough. That instead of loving the world, we are all lovers. We are all going to pursue something. We all love and run after something. Instead of loving the world, love the Father. And as you read the New Testament, you see over and over again um, commands like that. Turn from pursuing sin. Turn to pursuing Jesus. All of us, every one of us, is driven by this, this vision of the good life this vision of what the world will look like when everything is set right. And maybe even subconsciously, I think a lot of times subconsciously, we are, are going after that which we feel will satisfy us. And we, we are willing to expend all manner of effort, you know, work, time, money, uh, into, into achieving that end, of, of arriving at that vision of the good life that, that we have adopted. So, that being said, I think you're going to see, um, we're going to get a vision of a good life here in, in John chapter 2. Uh, let me, let's go ahead and read from, from John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12 will be our passage tonight. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he, would, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, our desire is that you would manifest the glory of Jesus here among us. Would you make known who he is, that we might put our faith in him, that we might have life in his name. I pray these things. I pray that you would help me. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, as I have studied this passage, I believe the key to understanding it is actually to work backwards. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to go all the way to the end, to John chapter 20. You don't have to turn there in your copy of the scriptures, but you're welcome to. It's up on the screen, though, behind, you, behind me. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. As, as Tim uh, shared with us a couple weeks back, or a few weeks back, this is John's purpose statement. This is why he is writing. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I know I, I, you probably filled in the blanks on your, on your outline here. You didn't need me to, to read that, but, but I just wanted to remind us here that this is, this is John's purpose in writing, is that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that as a result, that we would have life in his name. Now, if you're like me, you, you read that and you think, life in his name. What does he mean by life? I mean, I, we're already all living, right? Everyone here is breathing. You all good? Okay, everyone's breathing, right? Your, your pulse is, okay, all right, I'm just checking. So, we, we're, so what does John mean by life in his name? And this is a theme that you can trace throughout the Gospel of John. But let me, let me try to give us a preview, give us a quick summary. Well, you know John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Okay, so it's, it's life forever. And, and you know the context, it's being born again. The wrath of God no longer on you, but being born again. And then in John 4, it, John 4, 14, it says, Jesus says to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we find that it is a soul-satisfying life. If you know the story of John 4, you know that this woman was, was guilty of all manner of promiscuity, that she had had six or seven husbands. That, that, you know, and, and Jesus says to her, and we see even the result, is that if you receive me. You've been looking for satisfaction. What you've been looking for in all these men, what you've been running after, what you haven't been able to find, you will find it in me. You will find soul satisfaction in me. In John 10, he tells us that, that this is an abundant life. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's life to the full. But then in John 5, he tells us that um, we only have this life by coming to him. In John 6, he says that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. So we only have life by eating and drinking of his body and blood. And we'll unpack that more as we get into John 6. And then as we get to John 17, 3, we find out what this life is. This, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life is in knowing God. It is in being reconciled to God, walking with God, everything being made right with God. And this, if this sounds boring to you, do you know Jesus? Have you tasted of Jesus? Knowing Jesus will be what eternity is all about. We will dive deeper and deeper into knowing the glories of God. This is life that they know you, the only true God, in Christ whom you have sent. And Jesus even says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the life. I am the life. What you're looking for, I am the life. And so John writes all of this. He, he, tell, he, gives these, he writes of these signs that we may have life in his name. How do we have life by believing in Jesus? And so the natural question is then, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And that is the purpose of these signs, is to reveal who he is. 
to, they are signs that are pointing to his unique glory. As I've uh, described it before, an analogy from, from John Piper, as we talk about glorifying God, we, we, can, we, we think not in terms of a microscope where it's, you know, it's, he's something so tiny that we struggle to, to make, we, we try to make him a bigger deal than he is. But by contrast, glorifying God is like a telescope. It is, he is big, he is massive, he is glorious, he is beautiful. And it's bringing him into view. It's seeing him for all the majesty that he is. And as we, um, as we get to, to um, at the end of this, of this passage here, verse 11, it tells us the, the purpose for this sign. It says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. He made known his glory. He's, he begins to make known who he is with the result that the disciples believed in him. But but a sign to, to give you, uh, to fill in your outline, to, the definition is a sign is a, is a miracle. Did I say it right? That, I often say miracle, but it's, a, it's a, a miracle. Okay, I think I got it right that time. A miracle that points to the unique glory of Jesus. A miracle that says something about who he is, directing you to place your hope in him. And so what, how is Jesus' glory made known here? What is revealed to us about him? Well, let's let's um with this story here, let's 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 get the lay of the land. What's you know the setting here? This was a it was common in that day to have a you know marriage was a, I mean a great cause for celebration, high value put on marriage in that in that culture, and it was a week long feast and celebration, and it was supposed to be like the best party of all. And typically, you invite the whole community, so, so natural that Jesus would be invited. Uh, but then the conflict here is that they've run out of wine. And this was also a big deal. It was a, a great social embarrassment to them. And there could even be some financial penalties for running out of wine at the party. Uh, that uh, The bridegroom and his family, it was their responsibility to provide for, um, for the wine, for the party. And uh, if they didn't provide enough, then they could actually be sued by the, the, the bride's family for, for not, you know, making space for a good time. And so Mary here, the mother of Jesus, realizes what's at stake. And apparently not everyone's aware because the master of the feast, we know that he's not aware of it. But they've run out of wine. And, and she comes to Jesus and tells him of this, and, and he has a very interesting answer. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? What is, what is this to me and to you? And why, natural question is, why would Jesus talk to his mama this way? Uh, you know, I, um, I'll tell him myself, just, I, I've, um, when I was going off to college, I say this to my shame, but I, I thought I could talk to my mama a little different now that I was going to college. And man, it was just, it's still hurtful just thinking about, I know y'all think, sweet Joanne, why would I talk to her that way? I was getting too big for my britches. I, I don't know, but, um, but anyway, uh, I, you know, I speak with respect and, 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 and love and appreciation to my mother, right? And you should too, amen? Okay, so this term woman, it is a term of respect. 
It's like saying lady or ma'am. Uh, there's not really an equivalent for us in, in English, but, but it was a term of respect. He's not being like, woman, get yourself back in the kitchen. That's not what he's doing, okay? Y'all, y'all, okay, those who are wanting to go there, don't go there, guys, okay? That's not what he's doing. That's not what he's giving you permission for. But he, he is speaking with respect, but even still, why would you talk to your mom that way? Do you notice that um, Mary's name, Mary's not even named here. John, the gospel writer, never names himself in this story. John the Baptist, when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, may I decrease and may he increase. Mary's not the main point of this story. Jesus is. And, and, and this is not just her son anymore, but this is her creator. This is her creator. Jesus makes known his glory here as the creator among us. And if Mary is to seek his help now, she must not seek it on the basis of their mother and son relationship. But she is coming before her creator. That's, that's why he's... This, this is the beginning of, of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, this is... He's signifying that something has changed in that relationship. But there's something new here. And he is manifesting his glory in this passage as the creator. And so it is no trouble for him to turn water into wine when he speaks and says, let there be light, and there is light. The Creator is among us. And how would we expect the Creator, well, if you, the Creator coming to dwell here among us, to live here among us, how would you expect him to come? Would you expect him to be at a party? Would you expect him to speak respectfully to any of us? We have fallen short. We deserve to die. You would expect the Creator showing up among us who are sinners, you know, for us to be no more. But why does Jesus say here then, um, why does he answer her? the way he does when he says, my hour has not yet come. What's he saying there? What did he mean by that? Um, this is another theme that you can trace throughout the Gospel of John. I'll give you a couple previews here. Uh, but John 12, 23, what is this hour? Jesus answered uh, some people at that time, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It is the hour of his glory. And he's saying, the hour of my glory has not yet come. And so Mary, you know, naturally, um, she's, she knows the prophecies about him, right? I mean, she was well with child, but had not been with the man. And, um, and the angel Gabriel had, had came and had, and had said, you know, this will be the Messiah. And you imagine, you can sympathize with Mary, um, all her life, she's been waiting for his glory to be revealed. She's been waiting for him to be shown to be who he is. You, you can imagine some, some social embarrassment that she would like to be vindicated over, right? And, and his, his ministry has begun. We've, we've seen him be baptized. We've seen John the Baptist declare who he is. He's starting to call followers. And so um, Mary is, is ready. She, he knows, she knows he can do something. You know, what exactly she wanted him to do, we're not quite sure. 
but, but she, she's wanting, she knows he can do something. But Jesus says that his hour to be glorified has not yet come. Um, John 17, uh, also speaking of his hour, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And that hour of his glory is the cross. That is the manner in which his, his glory would be revealed, an unexpected way. Also in John 12, verse, verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. His hour would come through his own embarrassment, through his shedding of blood, through his own punishment. But he says, the fullness of that hour has not yet come. But in this, in this passage, in this story, he gives us a hint of the way it's going to come. Now, it says that he took six stone water jars that were for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, this was a, a tradition of the elders. It was not um, a command in Scripture. There was a command to wash before you go into the presence. Before the priest could go into the presence of the Lord, there did need to be a washing. Let me read to you of that. It's from Exodus 30 up on your screen. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze wash basin with a bronze stand. Place it between the tabernacle and the altar and fill it with water. Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and feet there. They must wash with water whenever they go into the tabernacle to appear before the Lord, and when they approach the altar to burn up their special gifts to the Lord, or they will die. They must always wash their hands and feet, or they will die. This is a permanent law for Aaron and his descendants to be observed from generation to generation. It's not that God was, was, is a germaphobe and he's ultra-concerned about good hygiene and you need to brush your teeth before you come into my presence. It's not... That's not what's being said here. This was a ceremonial washing, and it's to symbolize that you don't casually come into the Lord's presence, that the Lord is holy, the Lord is good, and he is completely pure. Just like the sun is completely full of, of, of light, and you can't just casually go up to something like that without burning up and being consumed. There, there is something wrong with us. There needs to be a cleansing. There needs to be, you know, we are morally filthy and in need of a washing. And that's what this was to symbolize to Aaron and his sons, that they needed a washing, they needed a cleansing before they could come into the Lord's presence to serve him there. And, the, and so the, the Pharisees, the elders here, they had, they had a tradition where they basically kind of extended this out, where not only did the priests need washing before they go into the presence of the Lord, but, um, you know, we need washing all the time. Uh, and they, you see they're washing here even before they enjoy a feast and I think this is this tradition here is one that is born out of a right thinking of, of knowing that God is holy and that we are not and that we are morally filthy and need a cleansing but it's born out of a wrong thinking that that I could come up with a a, a way to make myself clean to make myself clean and presentable and acceptable and so why then does Jesus take these purification jars to, to fill up with wine. Why does he not just put wine in, in some, some wine skins? What, what is he saying about himself 
by filling up the purification jars of all things with wine. I believe what Jesus is saying here is that because of his arrival, because of the work that he's going to accomplish in his hour on the cross, that these jars for purification are now useless. There is no longer a need to make yourself clean before him because, because his work on the cross makes us clean. His blood washes us and makes us clean. Jesus manifests his glory here as our purification, as our hope for purification. You do need purification. You do need to be washed. You do need to be cleansed of sin. But your own best efforts are never enough and can never be enough. Without purification, we die, as, as Exodus 30 says. But, um, but because of Jesus, we can live. And we can go before the Lord's presence. You know, speaking of traditions, when we pray, oftentimes we, we, we pray in Jesus' name, right? Um, and I think that's a, that's a good tradition. It's a good, if you understand what it means, it's saying, God, I don't come to you based on my name, based on my reputation, based on my works, because I don't have anything. I deserve to die. I don't deserve your, your presence, but I come in Jesus' name. I come on his reputation. I come on his righteous record. And as we, as we take the Lord's Supper, we'll take the Lord's Supper tonight, there's, there's as well that, that sobering reminder of, you know, 1 Corinthians 11 commands us to remember how it is that we come. We come only by Jesus' death, only by the body being broken for us. But because he has been broken, because he has died in our place, we are forever clean by Jesus. We are washed by the blood. I, I don't know about you guys, but as a, as a kid, uh, reading hymns, listening to hymns like nothing but the blood and, and being washed by the blood, I was always like, you know that's going to make your clothes red, right? Just um, water is what gets them clean, but how, why washing by the blood? And, um, but I think washing, you know, we're washed by the blood of Jesus, and in particular the wine is symbolizing that. It's symbolizing blood that there has to be bloodshed for us to be made clean. And that is a, a thing to grieve over, that my sin cost Jesus his life. But because of the full satisfaction of the demand for purification, the blood is as wine of all things. And it is wine in abundance. It is filled to the brim 20 or 30 gallons times six. I'll let you do the math because I'm bad at doing it in my head. But this is an abundance of wine that, that, you know, the demand for purification has been so fully met that there's space for celebration. There's space for feasting. So completely satisfied is that demand for purification that there is space now for rest. There is space for celebration. There is space for feasting. Um, trying to think of an analogy to, to describe this, this being in such need and such longing for that need to be filled and that need being met in such abundance that you, that you have more than you could handle, more than you need, so much to share. I was thinking about, you know, when your, your country is at, at war, if you can imagine our land being attacked, 
we wouldn't feel freedom to party, would we? Uh, you know, our main need would be for security. That's what we would be looking for is for protection. But once there is protection and once that is secure, there is room for pro prosperity. You know, because our, our, our borders are secure, because we, um, you know, feel safe here, we can start businesses, we can pursue things, we can have a good time. Analogies still fall short. Maybe another analogy that, that would help you is if you can imagine being a farmer and, and if, you, if you don't work, you don't eat. If, if a crop fails, I mean, that's, that's your family's livelihood. And so if you can imagine all summer working hard, you know, planting, plowing, tending it, um, you know, busting your butt to, to just hoping and longing for there to be enough food to last you through the winter. And then there's being this abundant harvest. You know how um, people grow things around here in their, in their gardens, and they're all the time bringing things that they've grown because they just have so much, and they're just, it's more than they can handle, and they're just delighted to share it. And if you can imagine a whole community, just the harvest being so plentiful, and now it's time to party. It's, it's time to crush grapes and to share them together. We are not only cleared of guilt in Christ, not only is God's wrath removed from us, not only are we pardoned, but we are declared righteous. We're declared sons and daughters. You're not only just set free from your crimes and free to go, but you're, you're welcomed in. The son who was dead has now returned alive, and it's time to feast and celebrate and slaughter that fattened calf and to pass the wine around. Notice who the master of the feast commends here. It says he commended the bridegroom, and he said, said to him, everyone serves a good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. But this bridegroom, he failed. His family failed. Their, their best efforts were not enough. And so what John is doing here is he's pointing to Jesus as that true bridegroom. That's what Jesus is doing here, is he is proclaiming himself, manifesting his glory as our true bridegroom. When he returns, he will marry us, and we will ride happily ever after, just as, as, a, as a, the fairy, all fairy tales point to. Though he knows us, though he knows us for, for how we've fallen short in our sin, Though he knows us, he will marry us, and he say, all that is yours is mine. I take all your sin upon myself, and all that is mine is yours. Feast. Enjoy. Enjoy, my Father. Enjoy all that is mine. I've shared with you before that in the Lord's Supper, that that first cup that Jesus extends to his disciples, it would have mirrored that of a... Um, that of an engagement, that of a betrothal, that of an offer to marriage. The custom in that day was um, when, a, when a man wanted to propose to a woman, he would extend the cup of wine. And if she took it and drank it, that was her accepting of that covenant. And then what he would do is he would, he would go off and he would prepare a place. He would, he would build an apartment onto his, onto his father's house and he would, he would make a space for he and his wife. And when the father said that, that 
the house is ready, that this, this, is, that is, this is satisfactory, that all is complete, then he would come with a shout in the night. And, he, and, and the bridegroom party would come, and the bride's party had to be ready. She had to be watching and waiting. And this might be a year or so later, but, um, but, she, but the, bride, the bridegroom would come, and he would take his wife, and he would carry her across the threshing floor. And so Jesus has extended that cup to us, and we have taken it, and we have said, I do, right? You know, we, I will follow you, Jesus. I, and, and so Jesus has gone away, and he's gone to prepare a place for us. And Jesus will return, and when Jesus returns, there will be feasting. There will be joy. There will be everlasting satisfaction. Uh, Matthew 26, 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We have that to look forward to. Uh, Gracie, um, she got a gift recently from one of our uh, grandparents. I can't remember if it was from Mima or from Grammy, but it was uh, some sand art. Do you guys, you parents, know what I'm talking about? Uh, this is the kind of gift that only grandparents give to their children, okay? It just makes all manner of mess. Uh, and, and so, oh, I was a friend, actually. Okay, oh, okay, all right. Well, still, grandparents give those kind of gifts. Can I get an amen? Okay, right, all right. You guys are afraid. Um, but, um, but anyway, we, we have this, um, you know, Gracie kept wanting to play with her sand art, and, and Christina was kind of like, nah, <laughs> well, it's not time for that. You know, maybe, maybe tomorrow. Um, and Grammy, who was there at the time, uh, says, yeah, we're going to play with that tomorrow, Gracie. And so every night before bed, this is just a, a spiritual discipline that, that my family practices as a, as a way to cultivate gratitude. Um, we, uh, we say things that we're thankful for from that day. You know, so thing, good things, ways that we've seen the Lord's hand, uh, just trying to, to be intentional and notice how God has been good to us throughout that day. Well, that night, Gracie... Um, one of, her, her, one of her thankfuls was that I'm going to get to play with sand art tomorrow with Grammy. And I wanted to correct her. I wanted to say, no, we're saying, we're saying thank you for things that have already happened. But Grammy's promise was so sure to Gracie. And Gracie could so rely on that promise that she was enjoying it now. That she was thankful for it now. And that's, you know, Jesus, he manifests uh, his glory here as our hope for satisfaction. Satisfaction that is to come. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. Every hurt will be healed. Every wrong made right. The drudgery of our everyday mundane will be revealed for the purpose that it had all along. And we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We will see Jesus. We will see him face to face. And when we see him, Scripture says that we will be like him, that we'll be changed in a moment, that we'll receive glorious new bodies, no more back pain, no more cancer. We will no longer struggle with any sin. We'll no longer struggle with fear. And we will, as well, we will see one another there. And we will, as one song says, we will say to one another, I always knew that you could be like this. I saw flashes and glimpses before. And we will feast together with the King. We will be satisfied, and we are satisfied now as we look forward to that which is sure to come. Even now, we taste it.
as we are sure of it. Friend, do you believe in Jesus? Have you put all your eggs in his basket? Is your hope in him? Do you long to be clean? Do you long to be washed of guilt? Have you, by meticulous effort, been trying to clean up your own act and walk the straight and acceptable path? Turn from the purification jars. Turn from a focus on what you can do to make yourself clean based on an idea of what you had about what might help. Turn from the purification jars and receive the wine. Receive what Jesus has already done, celebrating what Jesus has already done. Sit down and rest. Sit down and feast. Sit down and celebrate with brothers and sisters, the community of the redeemed. As we see the, the law, the commands in these passages, we, we should be like Mary, amen, where this attitude of, of surrender and resolve where we say, whatever he tells you, do it. We should have that attitude. And we should always obey like the servants did here, going all the way. They didn't hold anything back, but they filled the jars up to the brim. And we should also be like the servants who obeyed in faith. I mean, they risked their own reputation. They, they risked looking silly here as they took a cup of water and, and took it to the master of the feast. They didn't know whether it was going to turn into wine or not, but we should obey in faith like that. Yet despite our best efforts, our cheap wine has run out. We are the failed bridegroom and wedding family. Let me ask you, have your best efforts run out? Have they run out of power? Have they run out of joy? Has life fizzled out of your best efforts? Are you exasperated with nowhere else to turn, like Mary? Are you even to the point of social embarrassment if, if people knew what was going on in your life? Are you even at the point of financial penalties? Do you need a rescue? Turn from scrambling for a solution or running in shame away from the problem and turn to Jesus who would marry you though he knows you for who you are. Jesus promises life, but only in coming to him. Let's pray. God, my prayer is the same. Would you open our eyes to see Jesus, to see Jesus as our hope for purification, our only hope, and our hope for satisfaction. Lord, that you would come. God, would you come even now in our midst? Make known who you are and bring glory to your name. Pray these things in Jesus' name that we may have life. Amen.